It's Don here, and welcome to The Board, a podcast series on mechanical keyboards by the mechanical keyboard community. Proudly brought to you by Idea23. Awesome caps and great prices. And Kibio, the place for split keyboards. Today we have another episode run by myself and myself only as Kevin's travel and work schedule has meant it to be unfortunately not available tonight. So let's get right into things and uh, if we're lucky we may actually have a bonus episode this week if Kevin's got the time to record something by himself which of course we'll release later when that happens. This week there's actually been quite a plethora of things that have occurred throughout the community and I've chosen a select number of topics that I thought were interesting to me or things that I wanted to just briefly touch upon and gloss through. Plus, of course, I'll be drawing our competition that I announced last week for the Idea 23 keycap and our reminder of this month's Kibio giveaway as well. So first and foremost, let's get right into another announcement from Novel Keys. Now, Novel Keys this year, 2018, has been an absolute roller coaster of a ride. MG Sickler has been flat out, I reckon, just doing all sorts of development with Kale. So, now, about a couple of days ago, six days ago, they introduced the Novel Keys Cream Switch. This is a little bit different though to the majority of the things that have been coming out lately because it's not actually a box switch. So I'm going to run through very quickly the details from this, just reading straight off the post, which is that it has a all POM housing, it has support for switch top opening, it is a PCB mount bottom, it is a linear type of switch with a standard 4mm travel 2mm actuation, The actuation force is 55 grams with a bottom out of 70 grams and it will retail at 65 US cents per switch. Why is this something so different? I guess it's because the actual housing itself is POM. Now POM is already I believe pretty much the standard for the stems itself and it's a type of very low coefficient friction plastic. Now the description here in this post says it's super smooth. It's true and that's partially why it's got such a low coefficient of friction, kinetic friction happening here. But what makes this so different is the fact that because the actual housing is POM compared to other switch tops, the stem rubbing against the rails within the housing will be even smoother than before. So in theory, you would actually expect these to be amazingly smooth without adding loop. Of course, the description here says, inverted commas, basically, I wanted to get a switch that is as smooth as possible. So it's pretty cool. I don't know whether it's as worthwhile to be paying double the price compared to other switches out there for that extra smoothness. Of course, you know, if you're a linear type of person, that would mean a lot to you. If you want that really, really super smooth, fluffy, floating on a cloud kind of sensation, whether the smoothness will get even better 
if you lube it or not, of course, is yet to be seen. Now, I do know that a whole bunch of people have been given samples for, and I recently saw something from Top Clack that they, that Quakums had built a keyboard using these key switch samples. So, you know, if you're, you're into that linear game, then this could be amazing for you. I'm not a massive fan of linears, like I appreciate them and I have felt smoothness with things like the vintage blacks, lubed switches as well. Like I've seen and felt lubed Gatoron clears, which were super light and they were just like, you just breathe on them and they move type of thing. What I would be interested in is about how these would feel for other switches, because I know people will no doubt be buying these for the POM housing and trying to do a swap with other stems. What is interesting in this is that as part of the FHQ, they mentioned specifically, can I make modded switches with these? And the answer is yes and no, because they don't fit cherry tops on them, but the cream top will fit a cherry bottom. So somewhere along the line, Kale have made a modification to their tops that makes them kind of incompatible, uh, sorry, their bottoms, so they're not compatible with cherry tops, but not the other way around. So, you know, that's, and that's fine, because obviously they want to be doing something that will work for them and their mold making and their injection processes and so on and so forth. But the negative side, the negative side that I saw somewhere, I'm just trying to find out where it is, but it said that switch top tool, there we go, on the bottom, any other details? So switch top holes are a little small right now, and let's see if I can get them bigger, but currently they do not fit with the switch top tool. So it means certain tools used to open switches currently in this version one release type of thing will not work with them. Now, of course, if you've got something like the switch cracker, which actually goes underneath the the actual clip prongs, then that might work perfectly fine. Whereas if you're using like the tools from mechanical keyboards, which actually go in through the top and actually flex the housing outwards, then that's a separate issue. Now, POM in itself is actually quite a stiff plastic. So I don't know if when you use switch opening tools and how much flex it has compared to other plastics, if there will be any risks of breakage if you flex them too far, like how elastic it is, is obviously going to be very different. But of course, only over time will we know that. So it's really exciting for those people who are interested in linear switches. Of course, I would love to get some for the purposes of switch collection, but it's not likely going to be a switch that I would be terribly keen to make a keyboard out of unless if yeah the price was significantly cheaper or if it was you know a giveaway or something that I won or secondhand etc cetera, etc cetera. not that I would say no to samples or anything like that but yeah it's just personal preference that's that's all there is really to say about that so if you are a linear person make sure you check out novel keys updates on this when they actually come cuz uh, there will be pre-order prices discounted supposedly. There's no ETA on it yet, but will be announced soon. So thanks very much for Novel Keys to be continually pushing that envelope on where switches are going to go. Now, while we're still talking about things to do with Novel Keys, it's been a long drawn out drama, but 
the box switch and the box switch cracking issue is really coming down to, I suppose, an end, a closure, shall we say. There's two things that I came across this week which are related. The first one was the fact that Key Chatter, which is a really fantastic website, it's been around for a while and they do some fantastic articles in there, released an article by Seth on the box switch issue. So the title is Unpacking Unpacking (laughs) the Kale Box Switch Debacle. So the tagline here says, do kale box switches break keycaps? The answer is not so simple. Now, it's a fantastic article. It's super well written. It's got some, you know, great pictures with little arrows showing to parts of the problem. It's got schematics. It uses numbers and it's very, very well laid out. The logic behind it, the chain of thought behind it, the questions that it asks are spot on. So if you are listening to this historically for one, or two, if you're kind of just relatively new in the community and you weren't really sure what's going on, because I know a lot of people are still asking about the box switch issue. I saw some people on Discord this weekend, for example, who are like, so what's the deal with box switches? Should I be getting them? Am I going to break my keycaps? Go and read this article because it's excellent at laying out everything up to date and the issues that not only that box switches have, but potentially other manufacturers of switches and asking the question of, is it just a STEM issue? So tolerances is one thing, but of course there are other things that are related that may be, may be related, like the design of the STEM. So please go that go and check that out. Um, it's just super, super well-written. Now, The second thing about the box switch debacle, I suppose one way of really describing it, is that we've had an update from Mike from Novel Keys as well. So the update was that he's received a new batch of the box switches and he's put some on to test. He's measured some and they were consistently at the 1.3 millimeter or less. So none of them were actually over 1.3, according to his testing of about 20 of them. And he's actually put some GMK keycaps on them to see if they will cause any cracking or stretching issues. So it's really great that he's taking that time to to measure and test and let people know that this is happening. And they will go up for sale soon, next week, late next week, after he completes some of the mass drop orders that they're obviously being involved with. Now, <clears throat> this nib issue seems to be primarily one of the great causes of this cracking in that in order to get the thicker stem, they've had these little four like extra protrusions, I suppose is one way of describing it, that has added that extra thickness. And this is what people were talking about. And if you know, if you cut or shave down that that little nub that nib that little bar on the side of the main crucifix then you shouldn't have a problem of course if you use a metal keycap you probably will shave or compress that sufficiently that it won't be an issue for any other keycaps that you put on i personally haven't gone to the extent of trying to shave down or reducing and rectifying any of the switches that i have because i'm not too fussed about it but if you have invested really heavily in them, that's something that you might want to 
think about simply because, well, if you're concerned it's going to break your keycaps, some small minor fixes could potentially help you out there. So thank you very much to Mike for keeping the community updated about those new switches. And of course, everyone's going to be keen to get hold of the newer ones since they love the actual switch type and the feel, just not how it potentially damages keycaps. Whew. Okay, let's keep on rolling. So we've got a couple of other things here and I'm just trying to decide where to go from here. Um, okay, let's, let's talk, let's talk 3D printing. Now, 3D printing has been part of our community for a while. There's a lot of people doing some great stuff like 3D printed cases like zip tie, for example, you know, recently doing the, the, Zilli, the Zlant is, is his latest project. Uh, you know, people are 3D printing artisans, 3D printing keycaps and stuff like that. 3D printing plates, even I've done that kind of stuff as well, 3D printing macro pads and so on and so forth. And while this isn't the first time that someone's done like a, a project related to hot swapping, for hand wiring, this is the first time I've seen someone who's done a sort of almost like a plate mesh PCB for this. I'd actually thought about this kind of thing uh, for hand wiring ages ago, but it was going to be laser cut, but they've taken that concept even further and they're printing, it's like a skeleton type of PCB where you would actually just, you know, insert or attach your hot swap swip so that your hot swap socket into the 3D printed grid that you would hand wire and then you would of course be able to socket your switches into. Now I'm not explaining it very well, but it's essentially like a plate with a framework attached at the PCB layer level. So, you know, like five mil below the actual bottom of the switch where it goes through the plate, where you can just drop in your kale hot swap sockets. And then you would hand wire that and it would essentially allow you to be able to plug in and, you know, plug out your switches as you need to. So I think it's really cool that that 3D printing continues to help drive design change and I suppose in the nutshell of a word, in a broad sense, innovation. I wouldn't exactly say that this is super duper innovative, but the fact that someone's gone, you know what, I have a need for it. I'm going to take the effort and I'm going to create this and I'm willing to share it to everybody is is something that 3D printing really has enabled them to do so. And of course, by sharing it, then other people can take that thought, take that concept, take that design, and then evolve it, evolve it even further, you know, change their design, you know, build a revision of it, or for those people who use like GitHub and stuff like that, you know, take it and fork it, right? So I would say good luck to you, El Giraffe C. Fantastic work in the initial concept. I think uh, some of your structures don't look terribly, terribly strong, but they don't have to be because, you know, the switch is supported by the plate layer. It's just a matter of as long as you don't overheat bits and pieces when you're actually doing the, the soldering for it, then that would be pretty cool. Now, of course, you have to think about how your diodes are going to be connected. And if your 3D print design for this sort of inverter commas PCB layer can accommodate diodes in it as well, then even better. So awesome. Thumbs up from me. 
and I'm sure plenty of people who have 3D printing will be more than happy to jump on board and check it out, give it a try and, and see how it goes and works for them. Rightio. Wow, I'm like just absolutely blistering through things today. I don't know if I'm talking too fast or not, but hey, what can I say? Now, back onto the topic list. Something that's a little bit of fun that uh, I thought I'd mention, but at the same time, cringe all at the same time. So this week, Zed Frontier released or announced the group buy for the big switch combo. It's the Red Comet Big Switch Combo. Now, I'm not a massive mecha type of person, but I actually don't even know what the Red Comet is. Um, I'm, I'm sure other people do, but I don't. I haven't even Googled it. But at the same time, I can appreciate its design and its beauty. It's, it looks pretty cool. Now, it's expensive. It's heck expensive. It's two, is it 200? Let me just, let me scroll up and have a look. It's $230. Now, of course, inside it is a big switch. It has a enclosure and it's got an artisan cap on top. It's bright, it's shiny. It's, it's very cool looking, but it's very, very expensive. My biggest issue with it more than anything else is just the practicality of having it as a switch. Now they've got like this little indent at the front where you could stick your fingers and push down. But part of the fun of having a big switch is just being able to mash it. And you can't really do that with this. Like it's a beautiful decorative piece and it's functional. Yes, I get that. But you just can't smash your hand on this without spiking yourself on the helmet or potentially breaking bits off this keycap. Just doesn't have that same effect. Just just doesn't. I, I use my big switch every single day at work. Because it's my lock key. I get up and I smash that button when I'm going away from my desk because it locks my terminal. Can't do that with this. It's just going to sit there, look pretty, and of course potentially get damaged. But of course, it would draw plenty of attention for people coming around going, oh, wow, that's really cool. And then that would be probably about it. I mean, there are other people around the office and some of them even have things like, you know, those vinyl pop figures and stuff like that. But this for me, unfortunately, would kind of sit in that category. Still, it's pretty awesome. If you know what the big red comet thing is, whatever it is, red comet, uh, I think, it, what does it say down here? It says, uh, Sabaz, Sazabi, Sazabi, whatever, Saz <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> um, then check it out, I suppose my only concern is depending on how it's packed and transited over as well, depending on where you live, hopefully, you know, bits of the helmet and the spiky bits and stuff like that aren't going to get broken either, because that would really, really suck, and it's even got a moving visor, so, you know, it, it's just taking the entire concept and design of cool right up there, right up there. Uh, Z Frontier, awesome. It's nifty, but impractical. But good luck. <laughs> Let's move right on. Right on. Just going to close that tab off. Okay. Plate designs. Now, recently, we've seen 
the level, which was a keyboard designed by my co-host Kevin, and it had a plate layer that actually went in and it was screwed in, it had countersunk holes and stuff like that. But the level itself as a flat keyboard had a lot of heft to it, but it was really, really simple. Now, the only reason why I'm kind of relating this to to what I'm talking about and about to talk about now is the fact that some really simple, clean designs are often the best. And Sugar H put up a sort of video showing of what a four millimeter integrated plate looks like. And it's just a video of them holding up and flipping back and forth a couple of times this massive top of a keyboard. Now, I actually don't really know very much about it at all. I saw there was another thread that was related, but, you know, I just wanted to to talk about how much difference does it make to having a very, very thick plate? I have, you know, keyboards with steel plates and they're very solid. They're very rigid. Like you push on them, you flex on them, you type super hard on them and there's, there's practically no movement or bounce. And interestingly, in the comments for this particular thread, somebody actually said that it would cause pain in your fingers. And it got me thinking, well, does it actually cause pain in your fingers to have a thick, immovable plate? Most of us actually prefer to have a, a relatively rigid plate. Nobody likes lots of flex, because if you're going to have a lot of flex, you might as well type on like a laptop keyboard or something like that, right? You want that bounce and, and sag and sop in your in your keystrokes. I certainly don't like it. And at the moment, I type with a 96 key at work with novel key box navies, and it's a steel bent case. And it's really, really super solid. Now, I do feel the impacts on my fingers. Not that it like hurts, but I can definitely tell that, you know, there is a lot of impact force on that. But I, I attribute that more to the actual novel key switch than the plate because I type the same on other plates like on the ducky and on my Philco at home and on my uh, FC660C, my Leopold, and I don't have that same issue. So the only conclusion I can draw from that is it's not the plate, it's the switch, which is perfectly fine. I kind of expect that. So if you're going to use a four millimeter plate like this, yeah, that thing's going to be a beast. But is there actually any negative side effects besides the fact that it's going to be heavier? But who cares? Because it's a keyboard. You're not going to be hauling it around. But the sound, of course, will be slightly different. And that's okay because the stiffer case is more likely to give you that deeper, richer sound. And that would be fantastic. So you're not going to get a lot of pinging to it. But will it actually cause you harm? I don't know. It's interesting, though, that people might think that, though, might say that. That's just food for thought. But while I'm talking about a four millimeter plate, there's technically a five millimeter gap between the bottom of the switch clipping part, that sort of edge, to the bottom of the switch. Is there a lot of difference between a three millimeter plate, a four millimeter plate, a 4.5 millimeter plate? And I've seen people actually say that you probably never want to go past 4.8 millimeters because you run the risk of, if you run at a five millimeter plate, you could be hitting component soldered blobs and stuff like that from the other side. And that makes perfect sense. So if they've gone with a four millimeter plate simply to avoid that, then that's cool. 
Whereas, you know, if you've got SMD components that are completely on the other side of the PCB or you're going to be hand wiring, I can't see why you couldn't use a five millimeter plate. But will it make a lot of difference? Is it just the increase in weight? I don't know. If anyone has the uh, capability to do some switch science, some keyboard science, then hit me up, let me know, or uh, send me a sample and I'd be more than happy to test it for you. Uh, right, moving right along, four millimeter integrated plate, as cool as it is, probably not gonna happen for me anytime soon. Although someone said to me, I'll give you four mil plate in brass, I'd take it. I would take it. While we're still talking about kind of materials and material science, you know, material science and keyboards is, it's huge. Prior to getting involved in keyboards, it's not something that I would have ever imagined people cared about for keyboards. You know, you use a cheap, simple keyboard that comes with a terminal or, you know, a PC, and you don't think very much about it. But now that I'm so many years into keyboards and, and well into this quagmire, you know, you're talking about ABS, you're talking about PBT, you're talking about acrylics, you're talking about POM, you know, you're talking about how like different lubes affect things differently, like the difference between like 304 Crytox and thin lube and thick lube, and then you've got issues about um, other plate materials like brass and aluminium, carbon fiber, and how they flex. You've got stuff that's going on with like PETG. And now, <laughs> Jackstastic has come out and said, anyone thinking about using ultra high modular weight plastic? Hmm. Like, I didn't really even know what ultra high modular weight plastic is, but supposedly it would be potentially pretty good. It, I don't even, like, so they even talk about in this thread this other material called Corian, and I don't even know what the heck Corian is. But they reckon the strength and weight of this stuff is similar to Corian. And, well, it must be a really hard-wearing material because they use it for longboarding gloves. So it's protective when they're, you know, either breaking or going around curves and putting their hands out against surfaces and things like that. So... I am aware of a material called Delrin, though, because Delrin's used in a lot of automotive parts because it's very smooth and it can be machined to give some great looks and curves. And Jackstastic actually also makes a comparison of this ultra-high modular weight plastic to Delrin by saying that Delrin's easier to machine and comes in pellet and, and filament, but Delrin is flammable and has poor resistance to acids and UV. So supposedly this ultra-high modular stuff is actually stronger, like it's used in, in body armor and things like that. Uh, you know, does it make that much of a difference? Once again, you know, it's like me asking about a three or a four or a five mil plate, going between Delrin and going between ultra-high molecular weight plastics. Well, are you likely to be stopping a bullet with your keyboard? And are you likely to be pouring acids on your keyboard sure more uv susceptible degradation but if you're going to be making a plate out of this there's not even going to be that much of your plate being exposed to elements because you're going to have switches and keycaps covering a lot of it eh, if you're going to make an entire case out of it like an entire block and you're just milling out like a 60 percent case and it yellows then sure 
that's a separate issue. But at the same time, yellowing and aging for some people is cool because it's it's that vintageness, it's that retroness. And then I suppose the question would be, uh, can you paint it? Can you coat it? Can you protect it? Can you retrobrite it? So, you know, it's opening up even more fields of modification and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's nifty that people are getting into this higher end and this expansion of thought and development because we're just continually moving along going, you know what, this is really cool, but I don't want to sit here and just do the same old thing. Let's test, let's play, let's develop, let's, you know, let's grow and evolve. I would say even two years from now, goodness knows what kind of materials science developments may happen in between, and the entire community might find a shift towards other materials that are even bigger and better that we might not even thought about right now. So it's just something to keep in mind, which is, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Rightio. Whew. Now, around this time is kind of when we normally would do our competition stuff, so I might as well get that underway as well. So first and foremost, of course, our monthly KBO prize competition is to come up with a new name for the keyboard layout that currently is defined as either an ergo type layout or a split stagger type of layout. And so what we're talking about is keyboards like the Ergonox, like the Atrius, like the Iris. It's keyboards that have the columns lined up, but the rows are actually staggered, kind of like if you look at your your fingers, how you know your pinky and your fourth finger and your first finger, they form like that stagger of the row and keys. And that's exactly why those keyboards have that. It's because the actual length of your fingers are different, but they're all lined up in column in a fashion. So send through your thought and your idea on what a new phrase could be to describe that particular type of keyboard layout. Now we haven't actually decided if we're going to be just doing a random draw for the winner, or perhaps I'll actually ask Danny from Kibio to go through the entries and he can actually pick the winner out of those for whatever that he likes. But uh, I guess we can have that discussion next week-ish towards the end of the month. So please, please, please do send them through. Of course, the prize, as always, is that you get to pick a kit from Kibio's catalog, whatever it is that's in stock at the time when you win. And of course, that is just something that you get to discuss with Danny and he'll send that stuff right out to you. Now, last week, I asked for our weekly competition for people to essentially provide me with their favorite colorways and they would get a chance to actually win a Idea 23 keycap. So I've actually received five entries this week, which is really cool. So we've got uh, five entries which pertain to yellow and blue or Nautilus because it was their high school colors, but they also liked purple and gold, wedding colors, purple and white, navy blue and white, which is pretty nifty. We've got a, you know, I've actually seen this color, but I didn't actually know that there was a specific name for it, but it's actually the Gulf Oil livery, which is sort of that 
baby blue and orange color combo. It's it's a classic combo. I've seen it on lots of other things, but I never actually knew it had a name. So thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. Then we have another one that was sent in, which said black on white. It, you know, it's a classic. It's it's very classic. But uh, they were saying that like Dolch is beautiful, but often Dolch doesn't look as nice on other situations, depending on what it's actually being paired up with, and that they weren't actually a fan of things like Cyan Mods or Ski Data Orange. So, you know, that's okay. Everyone's got their own personal choice. And there's lots of colorways that, you know, I don't like that Kevin loves and vice versa. And I guess it's just, it's what makes the community interesting. And that's why group buys for different key sets will appeal to different people. But going on the topic of black and white, there's actually been a couple of people who've actually said black and white. So, you know, it's not an issue about boring. It's an issue about what you like, that style, that that classic, because it's black and white. Like, you know, it matches and goes with so many things. Very clean, very crisp. And then it's more about, you know, like if you have to have fonts and stuff like that. And of course, our last one was that silver and green. So silver and green is actually a really lovely combo. It really is. And if you put a bit of, I suppose, sparkle or shine or shimmer in with either of those two, it works really well. And if both of them have sparkle or shimmer with them as well, it's even better. And I used to play Warhammer 40k. No, yes. I played 40k and I also played Fantasy. Where was I going with that? <laughs> I, I was pretty pov back in those days in high school. And so my 40k army was just ultramarines left over from the starter box that people had donated. And my Fantasy set was Bretonians because you'd get Lizardmen or Bretonians. And, and my friends who played would just donate me the spares from their boxes because they only wanted the rule books and the templates and stuff like that. And I saved up a bunch of money and I bought myself the Lady of the Lake for my Bretonian army, which, you know, I loved that figurine. It was great. And I went out of my way and I bought sparkling green and silver and I painted her horse and her livery in that and then of course did her up as well and and it looked absolutely amazing so silver and green 100% behind it love love that color now there's only five entries here so it's going to be a relatively easy draw so I'm just going to chuck it into the random draw because Kevin's not here to throw me a random number and it says number one so congratulations Taylor I'm going to be getting in contact and one of those keycaps is going to be going your way. Thanks very much, all five of you guys, for getting involved with this week's competition. Now, let's get back into our topics. Whew. So there's there's two things here that I've got on my list. Uh, there's kind of controversy and then there's one other item which is yeah, a little bit more of a generic announcement kind of stuff. So I want to finish on a positive note. So let's go with something more of the negative note and controversy, I guess. The first one out of the two is a thread by Tyson522, where straight off the bat, the actual thread post is pretty inciting. Jchan94 
Please stop scamming people and give them their product. Whew, like straight off the bat, you know, Tyson's coming out swinging. He's, he's uh, not pulling any punches at all. At all. So, in a super condensed way, Tyson's gone and said, I've had a bad dealing and I got my stuff in refund eventually, but other people haven't. Yeah, he's coming out to bat for other people. So, so here's the thing. I'll, I'll read a very specific line of that original post, which says, I'm lucky I got a refund when I did. I feel bad for those that are still waiting. That's why I made this detailed post. Now, yes, there are some other issues here in regards to a refund versus an item and things getting shipped and stuff like that, but I don't know Tyson, okay? I don't know the person at all personally that I know of. I may have interacted with them. I may not have interacted with them. Separate, separate issue, okay? And, you know, everyone who listens to this podcast, everyone who knows me in person within this community and even outside this community will know that, you know, my opinions, of course, are very strong. And I hold quite strongly to my opinions unless if I'm demonstrated and proved otherwise. And then I'm happy to accept that I'm wrong. Okay, so please, of course, for anyone who's listening to this, then take that in in plain view with a grain of salt. But Tyson, why are you feeling bad for other people? that are waiting. How do you know that they don't mind? Or how do you know that they do mind? Now, if a lot of people who are waiting for things from Jay Chan and Keyclack had an issue, I am sure plenty of them would have also come out and said very similar things. And I know other people have previously, okay? So I appreciate that, yes. You're not the first to come out with thread posts asking about Jay Chan saying, where's my stuff or where's my money or I haven't heard from Jay Chan. You're not the first. You're probably not going to be the last. But at the same time, a lot of people probably don't mind waiting. A lot of people have the patience or are willing to give Jay Chan slack about you know, his business practices for whatever personal reasons. And we've got to remember that there's a lot of issues going on here. Okay, now this thread's actually being closed. The mod, Pudsey's actually locked it and said that nothing new is going to be added by leaving it open. Nothing new is going to be added by leaving it open. So let's just lock it. And they haven't deleted any comments. So if there's any issues, go and mod mail, you know, Pudsy about it. And I think that's that's really great because it wasn't that long ago that we have actually seen that J-Chan's come back to the community to address somebody else's almost witch hunty post, okay? And the way that we talked about it and the way that I personally interpreted a lot of the things that were being said is that J-Chan's real life outside of keyboards is a bit tough right now. And from a 
point of perspective of mine, who's I've been involved with people who have had to deal with lots of life-related issues and mental health issues. Doing something like this unnecessarily, especially if you're making assumptions for other people, can be really dangerous. Okay, we're treading a fine line here. And and I know there's going to be a lot of people who disagree with me here because, of course, they're going to be like, well, he's running a business, you know, we've paid for stuff and we're not getting our products. And yes, fine, I agree. I understand that. I appreciate that. But this person here has had dealings. They've reached a resolution to some satisfaction. Okay, but that's not what has happened is because they are calling out J-Chan on other people's behalf who haven't done it. Now, if they haven't done it because they don't want to raise a fuss or they don't feel comfortable about it, sure, I can appreciate you that that you do that for that for those people. But at the same time, J-Chan has said, you know, there's been issues with his family, medical issues, and that can be really serious. You know, the, the, the whole thing where he came back previously and he said that is very close to walking away from the community. They're trigger signs and danger signs. The fact that he's still running a store, the fact that he's still running certain things, we don't know if there's other obligations, financial obligations that he has quagmired himself into. We don't know what kind of group buys or contracts that he might have been involved with for these products that he's done. So he still needs to close a lot of that out. So, you know, it's a bit soapboxy at the point that I'm that I'm doing right now, but sometimes we kind of have to look on the other side of the fence. Recently, I did some training, okay, and, and the training was called Crucial Conversations. And there are some really interesting things that I came away with that training from. Now, Crucial Conversation, by their definition, the training definition and the system definition, is that when you have opposing opinions in a situation that holds importance, right? Crucial Conversations can be held every day in all sorts of weird situations that you don't realize. But the dangers of a crucial conversation is the fact that people tell stories to themselves. People tell stories to themselves that can lead them down a spiral of unforeseen circumstances and outcomes, right? But we have to take a step back and look at facts. Because if you tell yourself a story then you may be making assumptions that are completely and wildly incorrect. And by doing so, you know, you may be triggering events that will become almost like self-fulfilling prophecies because you think in a certain way, you behave in a certain way, which will trigger the other person a certain way, which then will reinforce the way that you thought it was, even though that might not have been what was actually going on. Now, I know that sounds really convoluted, but... (laughs) It does happen, okay? It really does happen. And some of the things that were taught in this course about holding crucial conversations is asking yourself some very simple questions. And one of them is, why would a perfectly normal, sane person be doing this? Whatever that this is. So if I apply it to this, right? If I was to make the assumption that J-Chan was perfectly normal and sane, 
why would he deliberately go out of his way to not send products, to not give refunds, to not complete his financial obligations? And this is where I'm coming from. We don't have enough facts on what is happening in his private life that is contributing to this. Yes, he's running a professional service. Yes, there are financial obligations. Yes, there are legal obligations. But at the same time, people, it's a human being, okay? Have some compassion and the possibility to have a conversation and say, hey, Jay Chan, look, I'm upset with you because of this, that, and the other. Here are the facts as I see them. Can you please give me something so that I know what's going on, right? And don't just come out swinging straight away. At least that's the way that I would approach it if I was in this situation. And thankfully, you know, I'm not. So I don't have to have that conversation. But if you are, then don't write an angry email. Write an email asking for information because you don't want to be making up a story that is not necessarily true. Okay? At least that would be what I would implore you to do. Because I I love this community. You know, and I don't want to see something bad happen to somebody like Jay Chan. Because, you know, down inside, I think he's probably an all right, outstanding guy. It's just some dumb shit might be happening in his life right now. And, and I would hate for that to spiral and get even worse than, than what it potentially could be. So with that, I'm going to leave that, get off my soapbox. And of course, you know, if you're listening to this and you disagree with me, let me know. Let's have a conversation. Write to me, you know, hit me up in Discord or whatever. We can, we can talk it out. Okay, let's move along. The other controversial topic, which I believe I kind of talked about last week, if my memory serves me correct, channeling a little bit of my uh, iron chefiness here, Das Keyboards. Last week, they banned some users because they were linking to alternative firmware. Well, Das Keyboard unbans users and apologizes. But the question is, is it too little too late? Has the community been sufficiently burnt to uh, not care? What do you think? Now, they wrote a very... uh, typical, you know, damage control, I suppose, statement, where it said, our mea culpa for being too hasty and banning users. We messed up huge and we apologize. We were late with Mac OS and Linux code. Some of you took it upon that took the lead in creating your own code and we overreacted. We are truly sorry. We especially apologize to the seven users we banned on the Q forum. That was wrong. We have reactivated their access. Members are free to post any opinions or content they want on the Q forum, including links to download code. We will not censor user posts for anything that is communicated in a respectful manner unless they link to harmful or inappropriate content. We will update the forum's terms of service accordingly. We hope to have the opportunity to improve the technology with your feedback and contributions moving forwards. Daniel Founder. Now, 
there are a couple of things that strike me really interestingly here in this particular short post from the founding person of, I don't know, Q Forums or whatever, Daniel, uh, Das. But seven users, like that's, well, it's not a lot, right? But seven users is a lot if it's people who are involved in sharing code. The second thing is they have to update their forums terms of service accordingly. What the heck was in their in their TOS that they got to change? What did their TOS say? Oh, you're not allowed to share stuff that like we don't endorse. Like, wow. Okay. How many people actually read TOSs, right? It's that whole thing about if you read every single TOS on or Euler's, you know, uh, end user, what was it? License agreement or something like that is what the Euler stands for. It would take you days, days and days and days to do so. Because a lot of it's just legal mumbo jumbo that the average Joe may not actually understand. So for them to actually have to up their toss is, uh, that's a pretty big deal to me because it means in there, they've written conditions that would allow them to do this banning in the first place, which I suppose is why it was relatively justified. But once again, is it too little too late? You know, it's damage control, but it should have never happened in the first place. Like I said the other week, will it make a difference? Will it dent their sales? Who knows? Who knows? Radio. So uh, good luck, Das. I hope this little apology may get back a little bit of goodwill, but um, probably not anytime soon. My final topic for this evening, in this episode, is something new, something something pretty cool. And well, there was a there was a giveaway involved and of course by now it's actually too late to get involved in this giveaway because they've already drawn um the winners and stuff like that but what i'm talking about is the marketwatcher.com launch so some very clever people mtdjr has created a site to monitor spec market it's, it's basically like a bot that will essentially check out and trawl mech market for keywords and things like that that you're looking for. And if there's a match, you get a notification, which is really, really cool. So the, the quick description here is that you sign up with your Reddit account and you authorize the app and you create watches with search terms and a flare filter. And then the mech market watcher scans every new post for your terms. And if there's a match, you send, you get sent a notification. The pricing is free, but there's a paid version which enables premium features and additional watches. So I'm assuming that, you know, you can get a certain, you get one watcher with the free account and you get up to 10 with a pro subscription, which is pretty cool. And you get, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff in relation to it. So the paid version is a dollar a month or 10 for the year. So, you know, it's actually pretty affordable. Like it's, it's as affordable as a Patreon subscription, for example. Yeah, for me, it's probably not going to be something I will need because I don't troll Mac Market very often 
these days because I'm, I'm more interested in, in just designing and building right now and my finances tend to orientate themselves in that direction rather than purchasing you know artisans and, and keyboards already built secondhand and stuff like that although of course parts and kits that that's a separate matter but if you are somebody who is out for particular things especially rare stuff or very specific artisans you know if you're after a particular fugu or a shishi you know or an egg face then get on mac market watcher you just chuck it in and it'll do the job for you it'll sit there and watch it send you that notification and hopefully you'll be fast finger in to get a pm into the seller and, and nab whatever it is that you're after which is really really cool so i want to say congrats to uh, mtdjr and if you have a team of supporting people in running this site for making the launch i hope it works really really well for you it looks fantastic it's a very simple sort of concept but it's a very very powerful kind of concept and uh yeah can't believe it's taken this long for someone to actually make it happen so cool cool you can check that out at uh, mr ktwtchr.com of course i'll have a link to the thread in the show notes as usual and you can check that out yourself as well now that was kind of uh how it went and a couple of weeks back i had talked about you know if you have any ideas for trash or treasure like what you might have as trash or consider treasure and i didn't really get any response but on our slack channel we actually had somebody said hey you know i've actually got something that i can mention and contribute to that so i said fantastic just send that through to me and and i can have a talk about it so thank you very much for sending that through to me and in their trash treasure item list was the first mechanical keyboard they got as an adult was a logitech g10 and when they got it they thought it was the best thing ever they customized it and they had mods um caps from a ducky shine and mods from wasad that it did led changes and you know they posted on reddit and all that kind of stuff and you know logitech actually said to them can we take that photo and put it on their facebook page which is pretty cool but then now it's actually been just sitting in a drawer for four years without being plugged in so it was a treasure and almost in a way it's kind of practically become almost trash at the same time you know other things like a Dell 8102W that was bought brand new in a box. They changed out the switches. They never even used it. So they've gone hunting for almost a vintage type of keyboard, put work into it, and, well, once again, it's been relegated into a drawer. And the third example of something that they've got that's just now sitting around, which could be a treasure for somebody, is a Silicon Graphics Foam 4 keyboard because it was a pretty good price at the time but all they end up doing with it after they got it was just taking pictures of it and now it just lives in a drawer <laughs> so there's some really good examples of stuff that people get um that if you're really after something you know maybe just ask around because someone might have something and if they're not terribly emotionally invested in it it could be something that they're willing to let go and pass it on to somebody who would actually appreciate it, who would actually use it. Now, for me, I don't really have anything like that because most of my stuff tends to be OEM or, or custom keyboard except for the Model M that Andrew sent me, which, thank you once again, it's pretty cool. But 
I know that there's plenty of people out there who would have stuff like this just sitting around that they've kept moving along in keyboards looking for their end game. They haven't found it, but they haven't moved any of the other keyboards on. So don't be shy to ask. You know, that's that's the whole concept of the want to buy aspect. And if you get involved in discords or slacks, things like that, communities, you know, on TypeHype or KeepTalk, GeekHack, just throw it out there because somebody might know somebody who's got one who's willing to let whatever it is go. So, yeah, pretty cool. And I suppose just to wrap it up, oh, sorry, I just dropped whatever it was I was fidgeting with, which was a, a brass fountain pen. Um, <laughs> Kickstarter project for Kumo from the Van Keyboards has successfully made the Kickstarter happen. They were looking for $85,000 and they actually hit $93,000 with over 600 backers on the Kumo. So congratulations to everybody at the Van Keyboards. And I look forward to seeing some great pictures and reviews of people once they get their Kumos. Which will be uh, very, very soon, I hope. That pretty much wraps up this episode. It's... uh, been fun talking of course as usual rattling on about keyboards and stuff like that in general for me i've been working on some more artisan keycaps Uh, i hope to have them completed shortly and they will end up for sale i suppose as a test bed i'm probably going to list them on type hype just because i can of course if you have no idea what i'm talking about what type hype is you should go and check it out it's another keyboard community where you can go out and hang with uh couple of hundred people it's like 450 odd people there at the moment it's still pretty small yeah i acknowledge that but it's growing organically Uh, it's just got some really cool features like being able to you know put images in natively without having to put them up on imager and then throw links and stuff like that but uh so i've been working on some keycaps and having a bit of fun with that i got some hot swap headers that you might have seen on our YouTube channel so I still have to actually solder them in when I've got the time to do so and of course you know I've got kits and stuff like that that I still have to build as well it's just really about finding time and opportunity with a a little one being rattling around and at the moment you know she's just going through a bit of a growth period and she's really enjoying her books so before going to bed at night Uh, We actually have to read her lots of stories from all of her books before she'll go to bed. So that's been taking up a bit of my time as well. But hey, that's that's how life is when you've got family, right? Now, if you do want to join in in our community on Slack, please send me an email at theboardpodcast at gmail.com. So it is just one word, theboardpodcast at gmail.com. And I'll shoot you an invite to our Slack you can hang out with a whole bunch of guys and girls, maybe. I'm not actually sure, but it doesn't matter. We're not genderist at all. Uh, talk about keyboards and everything and anything else under the sun as well. So thank you to everybody for listening to this episode. Thank you for supporting us through Patreon. Your love and support, upvotes, kind comments, feedback, suggestions, competition entries, subscriptions on YouTube, etc., etc., And uh, yeah, I'm going to say goodbye and wrap it up there. And of course, as usual, until next time, happy clacking.